we are going through a, a study of the attributes of God, or if you will, a study of the personality of God. Um, when you have a friend and you're trying to describe this friend to another friend, you will describe your friend's traits. You will describe their personality. When uh, years ago, a friend of you tried to convince you to go out with this girl that you knew, uh, what he wanted to know was, what does she look like? And you immediately went to the characteristics of her personality. Uh, <laughs> because there, there's more to an individual than what they look like. And in our immaturity and in our youthfulness, we don't realize that. Uh, but, but a person is comprised of, of attributes and of characteristics and of strengths and, and of weaknesses. When we look at God, we don't see any weaknesses. There are no weaknesses. There are no flaws. There are no cracks. There are no things that could use improvement. There is absolute and complete perfection. Uh, we have been then looking at the holiness of God, which is his primary attribute. We've been looking at the love of God. Uh, tonight, we, we address the issue of the truth of God. And I want to, as we jump into this, truth is absolutely essential. Um, one of the characteristics of our particular time is that we are screwed up to such a degree you know we have surpassed a lot of civilizations in a lot of ways we have surpassed any previous civilization in regards to technology we have surpassed uh, uh, other civilizations in terms of wealth and in terms of affluence and in terms of ease and is it not amazing that uh, we have all of these um, appliances and gadgets uh, beginning with the 50s where more and more things were being invented. And what those things were supposed to do, they were supposed to improve the quality of life, and they were called labor-saving devices. Yet as a nation, we now outwork any other country on the face of the earth. We have all these labor saving devices, yet we have less discretionary time that we use wisely than any other culture. So we have more labor-saving devices than anyone else has ever thought of having. Um, but we have very, very little leisure time to build our relationships and the quality of our families. You guys hear what I'm saying. Uh, one of the ways that we surpass any uh, culture or civilization before us is, is that we have arrived to a point of uh, such enlightenment that we understand that there is no truth. That is a hallmark characteristic of our culture. You'll hear about postmodernism. What does that all mean? Well, basically, at its core, at its gut, postmodernism says there is no truth. So you wonder... Why we see all the things that we see? Why are we seeing a... Uh, I met a gentleman uh, before. The, the, we started tonight who's a journalist. 
That's a very honorable profession. Historically, it has been. But we have a rash of stories that we hear now about reporters, and we hear this on a constant basis, of reporters who are dismissed because they wrote stories as fact. In actuality, they made things up that didn't happen. A, a, a guy who has been a reporter for USA Today, one of their star reporters, who is a professing evangelical Christian, had to resign in the last couple of months. Why? Because he would report things from Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever that he was. This guy had an amazing ability to sniff out stories that nobody else could get their hands on. Well, it's because he was making them up. They weren't true. And he'd carry his Bible with him. And he'd share Christ with people. And then he'd lie through his teeth about these particular incidents and stories. And these stories would just, they would just rip your heart out. You see. So it's just not this guy. I mean, it was some, some young guy at the New York Times, and, and uh, he's just a liar, just a flat-out liar, you see? And, and, and why is that? Well, because when you raise people up in a philosophy of postmodernism and tell them that truth is not important, then you should not expect them when they write stories about something that happened in a political campaign or on uh, you know, a battlefield, you should not expect them to tell the truth. Because truth doesn't exist, and truth is relative. And truth is whatever you perceive truth to be. Cultures can't last that do that. Nations can't last that do that. Marriages can't do that. You want to kill a marriage? You want to ruin a marriage? Then lie to your wife and do it habitually and do it uh, constantly. Uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll kill the marriage. You'll kill her, you'll kill your children. But we, uh, but we proudly beat the drum that there is no truth. Uh, the fact of the matter is, there is truth. And we know within us there is truth. Not only can you not have a good marriage without truth, um, you, you can't have a good nation without truth. Uh, it has been, in this nation, truth has been at such a high premium that if you were to lie under oath, you would be convicted, it was a felony, and you would go to jail. Unless you're a president of the United States. You see. Who is a liar of liars. His friends would tell you he's a liar. He'd tell you he's a liar. He'd laugh about it. Did we censure that? Did we impeach? No. See, sometimes history is made and we don't realize it's been made. In, in my way of thinking, when you have a president who's a sitting liar and is caught in an act, you know, Martha, Martha Stewart didn't commit perjury. Do you know that? She didn't lie under oath. She lied in an interview. You said you're being technical. I, I, I know I am. Uh, she was still wrong. She shouldn't have lied. But I've read some very interesting articles that technically she did not break the law. Now, she broke the moral law because you're to tell the truth. But, uh, um, see, she's not the President of the United States um, who had some cronies that were going to make sure that nothing happened to him because they're liars. And they're covering for each other. So we crossed the line historically in our nation for the very first time. Um, 
Mary was watching a program this last week on cheating in schools. Maybe some of you saw that. Did you see it? She said, Steve, you got to come in and watch it. I said, I can't watch it because I'll get depressed. I mean, I, I could hear just enough. I would have been depressed. And this guy from Harvard, she was telling me about, that writes all the papers, these brilliant research papers, and that's what he does. And he doesn't have a twinge of conscience about what he's doing. And then they interviewed some students. And during the commercial, she said, well, it just makes sense because they interviewed this one student. He said, well, President Clinton did it. You see. So, you can't have a good nation. You can't have a good marriage. Oh, and this one student who was a brilliant student but was cheating and all this is getting ready to go into investment banking. Oh, see. see and he'll join some of the others. Yeah. So, so you see, guys, truth is critical. Truth, truth is a foundational principle. There has to be truth. Our lives have to be in, adher in adherence to truth. Now, I want to hit this. As we jump into this, I want to hit it from some different angles because truth is under attack in a number of different ways in our culture. What we have to do as men is we have to do whatever we must do to fight this off in our own lives. Because as Christ has come into our lives and changed our lives, he has given us truth, as we're going to see in a minute. But we are in such a uh, flash flood, if you will, I was reading somewhere this week about uh, Fortune. I was reading in Fortune about this, about this guy that has this company in Hawaii. And uh, if you know anything about surfing, uh, the, historically the biggest waves, if, I grew up in California, and I wasn't much of a surfer, but I knew a lot of guys that surfed. And if you wanted to surf big waves, you would go to Waimea Bay because waves there would get 30 or 40 feet. And the first guy to really surf Waimea Bay was a guy named Greg Knoll in the 60s. They called him the Bull. You remember him, B. And he always wore a striped bathing suit. And, and you've got a 30 or 40 foot wave behind you, and, and, and this sucker looked like a linebacker. And every time you see a picture of him at Waimea Bay, he's just, it's like he's glued on to that. Because you don't mess with 30 or 40 foot waves. There were bigger waves outside but you couldn't get out there because of the break. To try and get through a 30 or 40 foot wave, you, you can't do it. But some guy, some entrepreneur, said, wait a minute, if we, put, if we got jet skis, we can now pull these guys outside the break, and that's what they do. And guys are now surfing 80 and 90 and 100 foot waves in the winter at, uh, outside of Waimea. Why would anybody want to do that and they got to give you special training because you see if if you and they say at all costs whatever you do stay on your board well you didn't i didn't i didn't need to pay three thousand bucks to find that out because you see you go down when you got a wave that that's big that is that big that thing can hold you down for 90 seconds um, there's a place in newport beach called the wedge and if you ever go to see a surf movie, 
they usually have footage of the wedge. Guys, body, you body surf at the wedge. I went out the wedge one time. Um, that's because I got wedged. <laughs> and it wasn't that big of a day. And I was all I could do to get back in. The power of those waves. And those waves were only running about five feet that day. But I mean, you were you are utterly helpless. You are out of control. That wave does with you what it wishes to do. You have no will. You have no choice. You have no options. You have no network. You are completely at the mercy of the power of that water. Now, there is a raging wave that is going through our nation, a flash flood, powerful, powerful water, which is pulling people away from truth. We cannot allow that to happen. You cannot allow that to happen for your children's sake, for your grandchildren, for the sake of your marriage. To honor the Lord, you can't allow that to happen. But we're going to fight it every day. So I want to hit this from different angles. And then we're going to get our feet under us on the foundation of the character of God. Because this is how we build our lives. Um, I was checking um, email this afternoon. And uh, I get an email from, uh, from Gary Bauer. Here's a paragraph or two of what he had to say. While the nation's attention is focused on the treatment of Iraqi prisoners in Baghdad, the Justice Department today released a report calling attention to prisoners here at home. But there's a twist. There is a growing concern that al-Qaeda may be recruiting in U.S. prisons. This is not a new issue. My good friend Chuck Colson of Prison Fellowship has been doing his best to raise the alarm of, of Islamist recruitment for quite some time, but his efforts have largely fallen on deaf ears. If that's true, why would that fall on deaf ears? Because there is something in our culture called political, what? Correctness. It may be true, but it's not correct. Culturally, uh, uh, I'm grateful for President Bush, but whenever he gets up and talks about Islam as though it is an honorable religion, he doesn't know his history. Because it isn't. It is murderous. Um, its goal would be the elimination of Christianity and Judaism. Quite frankly, that's why they don't want any kind of deal with Israel. That's why they hate us, because we're for Israel. Isn't it interesting? Because Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, what did he say? I'm trying to remember. They who bless you. Thank you very much. I'm on this medication. I got a root canal that's flared on me. So if I fall to the ground in sudden pain, You'll understand why. But then again, I can really say some wild things tonight and deny later that I said it. Because <laughs> I've been influenced by the culture. Um, but after a number of Islamic organizations, now catch this, catch this, guys. But after a number of Islamic organizations that train Muslim chaplains were, fa were found to have ties with terrorist groups, Members of Congress started asking questions and demanding answers. 
The Justice Department report states that the 105 federal prisons remain vulnerable to infiltration by religious extremists, that prayer services are rarely supervised, occasionally conducted in Arabic, and that the imams and Muslim volunteers who lead these prayers are rarely vetted. That is nonsensical. That is ridiculous. Now, is there truth that they're probably being recruited? Yes, but it's not politically correct truth. So we are ignoring truth. We are ignoring intelligence. So they got the 9-11 commission with that one woman with the log coming out of her own eye. You know what I'm talking about? The woman who should be on the other side? I saw a great cartoon the other day. And there she is with a log with a Douglas fir coming right out of her eye. That was a reference to Jesus said, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log, the plank, out of your own. Well, why aren't they looking at this? Because it's not politically correct to look at certain aspects of truth. This will come back to bite us. And then he goes on and illustrates it. He says, well, all the news about prisoner abuse and terrorists in our prisons here at home, I wanted, you to bring, I wanted to bring you a story of a genuine American hero who thwarted one terrorist attempt to break out of prison. In November of 2000, almost a year prior to the September 11th attacks, Louis Pepe, a guard at New York's Metropolitan Correctional Center, was escorting Mahmoud Salim back to his cell after a meeting with his lawyer. Salim, a well-known al-Qaeda leader, was being held in a special wing known as Ten South, awaiting trial for his part in the twin African embassy bombings in 98. But Salim had other plans. He was planning a jailbreak with other al-Qaeda operatives, and he sensed the time had come to strike Luis Pepe. Using hot sauce he had collected from the prison cafeteria, he threw the sauce in Pepe's face, temporarily blinding him. Then Salim took a comb he had sharpened into a makeshift knife and plunged it into Pepe's left eye. Amazingly, Pepe fought back, held on to the cell keys until their guards arrived. Why did Salim attack Pepe? Because Louis Pepe was, one, was the one guard who went out of his way to treat these prisoners with respect. They saw him as soft, and when the moment was right, they struck. On Monday, Salim was sentenced to 32 years in prison for attacking Pepe. I had never heard about this until this afternoon. Have you? Well, why would that be? Because it's politically incorrect, and it doesn't fit somebody's standard of truth. Your Honor, I would like to submit this as another piece of evidence. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I, I'm kind of loaded for bear here, guys. Um, Roger Von Eck, in his book, Expect the Unexpected or You Won't Find It. Catch this. Recently, I read about a man who has applied <clears throat> a unique principle to his view of life. He believed that to be successful, you need just two things, WD-40 and duct tape. <laughs> WD-40 is useful to get things moving that are stuck. It's useful to get things moving that are stuck but need to be moving. Duct tape is useful to keep things in place that are moving but need to be kept in place. Did you get that? That was deep. That got me to thinking about dividing people into two groups, WD-40 people who get things going and duct tape people who hold things together. And then later in his book, he talks about the importance of keeping things moving. He tells a true story about a frozen fish processor that had trouble selling a new line of fish because the fish 
tasted flat. The company tried everything to keep the fish tasting fresh, including holding them in tanks until just before processing, but nothing worked. Then someone suggested put a predator in there with them. That should keep them fresh. <laughs> this idea solved the problem. The fish kept moving, retained their vitality, and tasted great. Now, I, I read you that story for this reason. Um, uh, you wouldn't be here if you didn't love the truth. Now, I just read you this deal here, and it kind of hacks you off, and it kind of upsets you, and it concerns you. Um, there are predators among us, but you know what that does? It keeps us moving. It reminds us that we're at war. We remind, it reminds us there's spiritual battle. It reminds us that I can't become like them. It reminds me that truth is essential in my life. And that if I don't have truth in my life, I have nothing as a man. Nothing. One more from Von Eck. You guys remember the, the great series, The Twilight Zone by Rod Serling? This guy refers to one called the Rip Van Winkle Caper. Here's the plot. After robbing a bullion train from Fort Knox, four thieves stow their fortune in gold bricks in a cave and enter suspended animation for 100 years certain that they will evade all possible pursuit. When they awaken a century later, however, they find that their plan has worked perfectly except for one problem. When they try to spin their precious metal, they discover that it doesn't have the value they thought it would. Because of advances in industrial chemical engineering in the intervening years, gold has become a ubiquitous commodity and is actually worth less than its weight in water. It turns out they made a fatal mistake. Um, where will you be in 100 years? Where will I be in 100 years? Where will Clinton be in 100 years? Where will Donald Trump be in 100 years? Where will Hussein be in 100 years? We forget, guys, the how we live today. How I relate to my wife. What I said on the phone to that client. We forget that that is going to make a difference a hundred years from now. How I live today is going to have a consequence for eternity. But see, when you live in a culture where truth is not valued, um, we forget that. I'm reading a book called Swimming to Antarctica by this woman named Lynn Cox. She's crazy. She's one of these long-distance swimmers. That's all she does, is she swims. She, she swam the Magellan Strait. Uh, she, uh, she loves to get in cold water and swim. This woman loves pain. Um, she's, a, she's a great writer. It's a fascinating book. Um, uh, you say, why did you pick this up? Because I figured there had to be a story in here that was worth. Uh, and she's got several um, she, when she was getting ready to swim the English Channel for the first time, you know, the thing about the English Channel are the currents. Not, not only is it the, um, uh, not only is it the, uh, the uh, temperature of the water, but the currents that are swirling around and coming around that island of England uh, between that channel, uh, and it shifts, and it is very, very precarious. So few who start out to swim the English Channel actually 
actually make it. She had a mentor. Uh, she grew up in Southern California, and, and she met a man who was a, uh, a swimming coach, a man from Egypt, where swimming, I didn't know, is a national sport. And um, she met this man named Fami Atala when he was in his 60s. He was a psychologist, sort of a precursor to the sports psychologist that we have today. And when she met him and his wife, and she was talking to him about his swimming the English channel, it, it turns out that uh, he had had some real disappointment. He said that he had attempted the English Channel five times, and each time he had encountered poor conditions. He would not swim freestyle. He would swim the breaststroke with his head above water, and that didn't help him either, but it was his best stroke. He was a slow swimmer, and the tide was faster than he was. So on his first and second attempts, he was carried with the tide in an enormous circle, not even getting within sight of the English shore. But on his third attempt... Uh, his pilot, the man in the, in the boat next to him, and by the way, they can't touch them. They can't hand you food or water. They have to throw it into you. But you have to have someone guiding you. His pilot uh, got lost in the fog and guided him in the entirely wrong direction. Despite this, he didn't give up. He swam for 26 hours. You got to commend somebody like that. He kept going. 26 hours. And then with a trembling voice, he said, I got within 400 yards of the English coast. I could see those very white, beautiful cliffs of Dover and the pebbles on the beach. The water was very calm, and I rolled over on my back for a moment to rest. King Farouk, the king of Egypt, was standing on the shore to greet me. He waved to me. So here's this guy, before he takes the final 400 yards, he's just trying to gather himself. Suddenly, two men in the boat next to me put a blanket under me and lifted me out of the water before I could stop them. They thought I had passed out from the cold water. I was simply, simply gathering myself for the final 400 yards. By putting the blanket under me, they disqualified me. King Farouk told me afterwards, Fami, it broke my heart when you did not finish, and I told him it broke my heart too. This was back in the, uh, in the 40s. So what this guy did was, he went to Massachusetts. He got an attorney. And um, he appealed to the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And by a vote of four to three, they decided to change the law. Although there was no precedent for changing the law. There are rules of the English Channel Swimming Association which says if someone touches you, you are disqualified. And they touched him. But he didn't know they were going to touch him. And it wasn't his intent. And these rules, after all, these rules are unfair. And he's a bit, now you guys know what I'm doing here, don't you? You see, did, did he go to court? Did he get an attorney? Did he? No, no. Because he lived, he made this attempt. As disappointing as that was, see, there was more of a modicum of truth and a sense of um, propriety when it came to law and rules and, uh, and truth. And the truth was, if someone touches you, you're disqualified. Now, would you be surprised today if something like that happened and the guy went and got an attorney? 
Would you be surprised? No, of course not. You'd expect it. You'd expect it. Why? Because truth is not valuable in our culture. And the danger in living in a culture like this is we become like these other people. So why in the world has everybody been celebrating Pat Tillman? Guy wasn't a Christian. Guy wasn't a believer. In fact, some things were said at that funeral that were, I mean, on the verge of blasphemy. But we still, uh, he, he, he's not from a Christian home. He doesn't have any, any, he doesn't believe in God. His brother got up and said he didn't believe in that religious expletive deleted. He got up there and put a glass of beer up on the podium. Uh, that's, real, that's really sad. But, what did this guy have? This guy had some semblance of truth in his life that when our nation got attacked, everything else paled in comparison, including uh, millions of dollars. Uh, there was some truth in his life, and he said no to things that other people wouldn't say no to and pursued a principle which has become increasingly rare that that's why he's been honored in such a way and, and should be honored in such a way because we've lost truth i got a whole bunch more here let's let's get into god let's see what he says Let, let's let's get to the core let's get to the root um he is the god of truth it was Mark Twain who said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. That, that's just, well, that's just true, isn't it? If, if you tell the truth, you don't need a pile of attorneys. If you tell the truth, you don't have to collaborate with the other guys of whom you were trying to pull one over on somebody. If you just tell the truth, you don't have to remember. It's just a lot easier just to just to tell the truth. Uh, as we look at the characteristic of God, which is his truthfulness, let's make several observations. Number one, God is truth. Or, more precisely, God's nature is truth. Have your Bibles turn with me, if you would, to John 14, 6. Jesus declares in John 14, 6 um, his nature and the nature of the Father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me. That'll get you in trouble, that statement. It'll get you in trouble in Canada. You've read about the bill that, and I, and I haven't looked at it for a few days, but, but the bill in Canada that is going to basically outlaw the Bible and what the Bible says about certain things, including homosexuality. And uh, 
I was speaking in Maine two weekends ago, and there were a bunch of guys there from New Brunswick, Canada. And they said, hey, we'd like to call your office about getting you up here. And I said, great. I'll come up and go to jail. Because, um, uh, I mean, that very well, I'm not sure it will happen. It could happen. They passed this law. Um, I'm sorry? Oh, it did pass. It did pass. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to Canada. <laughs> I'm not putting myself on the line. You guys go with me? Yeah. Well, you know what? Some guys, somebody's going to go to jail in Canada. Because, you see, if you declare the truth, people don't want to hear the truth. Jesus said, I am the... Boy, this one hacks them off. This one hacks them off. Because this is not multicultural. What Jesus is saying here is that uh, Hinduism is wrong. What Jesus is saying is that uh, any other religion is wrong. Jesus is saying there is no way to get to God but by me, through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So you're in the Lao Tzu, you're into Confucius, you're into Buddhism, you're into this, you're in the transcendental meditation. Whatever it is you're in, if you're not in Christ, you don't get to God, which is the absolute antithesis of where our culture is because there are many ways to God. Now, I was really interested in seeing what was going to happen this morning because I was invited to speak at a prayer breakfast this morning in Louisville. And I didn't know what I was going to find, and I didn't know what was going to be waiting for me. You didn't used to have to think about this, but for all I knew, there was going to be some Iman sitting up there. And not only were they going to read from the Bible, they were going to read from the Koran. Which, if they did, that meant I was checking out. Because I'm not going to bow before some false god. I'm not going to do it. But, you see, we didn't used to have to think about this, but we have to think about it now because we want to be inclusive, and there are many ways. There's not one way. There's there are not many ways. There's one way. The nature of Jesus is truth. John 14, 6 is not saying that Jesus is truthful. John 14, 6 is saying that he is truth. In Titus 1, 2, we are told that God cannot lie. He can't do it. And maybe, maybe you remember being in college and there's some philosophy guy, you know, smoking a pipe with long hair and, and uh, smoking dope between classes. And he gets up there and he strokes his beard and he says, can God make a rock that's so big he can't pick it up? And I think, well, yeah, I mean, I would say he can if, I mean, he made you and you're a fool. I would think he could do that other thing. <laughs> but I didn't say that. Um, are there things God can't do? Yes. Because what is the primary attribute of God? The first one we studied? Holiness. Holiness is moral purity. God cannot lie. He cannot. Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. Why not? Because his being, his nature, is truth. Complete and total truth. God is truth and the source of all truth. Not only in the sphere of morals and religion, but also in every field of scientific endeavor. My, my daughter Rachel was telling me about a friend of hers, and this guy's thinking about getting a PhD in mechanical engineering. You know what he's going to study? He's going to study, when he studies engineering, he's going to study the truth of Jesus Christ. You say, what are you talking about? Louis Burkhoff. 
the great theologian, said, the truth of God is the fountain of all knowledge. It is because of this perfection that he is the source of all truth, not only in the sphere of morals and religion, but also in every field of scientific endeavor. So how the heck did we get men on the moon? We studied the principles of science. Not theories, but what we knew to be true, laws that we knew to be true, we were studying the truth of Christ. Augustus Strong, the great Baptist theologian, said this, all truth among men, whether mathematical, logical, uh, moral, or religious, is to be regarded as having its foundation in this imminent truth of the divine nature and as disclosing facts in the being of God. God is truth. All truth comes from God. So if you're studying engineering, you're going to study the truth of God. That came from the mind of God. If you're going to study geometry, that came from the mind of God. If you are going to study principles of, uh, 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 of anything that you can imagine, uh, that comes from the mind of, of God. I'm not talking about theories. I'm talking about facts. Those come from God. All truth emanates from him. Um, he's the creator of mathematics. He's the creator of engineering principles. He's the creator of physics and of medicine. He is the source of all truth. So what is truth? Here's a definition of truth. Truth is conformity to knowledge, fact, or actuality. Say that again. Truth is conformity to knowledge, fact, or actuality. Uh, truth is fidelity, fidelity to a standard or an original. In this great little biography of Theodore Roosevelt, you got all kinds of nuggets with this guy. I've quoted this before. This one George Grant wrote. Theodore Roosevelt said, Every thinking man, when he thinks... I just read this quote in here. Because I remember that phrase. I read this in the few, last few weeks. Because I love that little thing. Every thinking man, when he thinks. That's pretty good. Because not every thinking man thinks. Every thinking man, when he thinks, realizes that the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure ourselves, to figure for ourselves what that life would be if those standards were removed. Did you catch what he was saying? He said this 100 years ago. The Bible is so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure ourselves what that life would be if those standards were removed. We're living in it. We would lose almost all the standards by which we now judge both public and private morals. And he was right. All the standards which we, with which we, with more or less resolution, strive to raise ourselves. He was prophetic. That's where we are. George Grant says, Roosevelt quoted the Bible. This is Theodore Roosevelt, not Franklin. He quoted the Bible often, evincing his intimate familiarity with it. One biographical archi archivist, archivist, guy who does research, examined his published works and found that Roosevelt had so integrated Scripture into his thought processes that there are actually more than 4,200 biblical images, references, inferences, or complete quotations contained therein in his speeches. 
And his unpublished letters, articles, and speeches contain hundreds, perhaps even thousands more. He was full of the Word of God. He was full of truth. He couldn't help but refer to it. That's why he was a great president. That is an amazing quote. It would be literally impossible for us to figure ourselves what that life would be if these standards were removed. He couldn't even imagine where we are today. I told you what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in 1959, didn't I? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in London, England, said, we are living in days of exceptional evil. He said that in 59. Most of us would cut off our right arm to go to 59. We think 59 was the good old days. Lloyd-Jones looked around and said, we're living in days of exceptional evil. Wouldn't believe what we're living in, Mr. Jones. It's, it's beyond belief. Why? Because truth has been cut loose. There's no anchor of truth anymore unless, unless you go back to God. Even evangelical churches are getting away from truth. Well, but that's all right, you see, because we've got to be seeker-sensitive. Oh, yeah, we've got to fill the seats on Sunday. See? See, there are a lot of pastors, and they're, you know, what, you know what's happened? And, and I'm tongue-in-cheek. You're absolutely right. So, see, we've become so seeker-sensitive. Why? Because the pastor's job is to put butts in the seat on Sunday. Now, he won't come out and say that, because they'd fire him if he said that. You know? Didn't Chuck say anal on Sunday? Mary told me there was an audible gas that went through the room. That's ridiculous. Oh, well, pastors aren't supposed to say certain things. Well, what if it's true? See, so, so pastors, see, well, what's the job of that? We have all these seeker-sensitive. Why do we want to be seeker-sensitive? Why do we want to do that? Because we want as many people in here as we possibly can get. So in order to do that, you see, we don't want to offend anybody, so we might have to cut back on the truth of what this says. Because we've got to get butts in the seat on Sunday. Well, see, as pastors, you've got to be very careful because, see, Jerry Jones wants to get butts in the seats on Sundays. So why don't we start a, uh, an evangelical football league? If that'll bring them in. Yeah. I, you know what? We're probably taping this. How do we build our stadium? Yeah. You, you know... You know, one of the things, when, when, when I do a lot of speaking, we got this, I got to think about this, so I'm going to say it. I go into these, I go into these places, and uh, I do a lot of speaking in churches and conferences and all that. And, and you know what? I see a lot, I, I, here's where I see it. I see we're out of balance on quote-unquote worship versus the Word. It used to be that you had a block of time for a Sunday morning service. The majority of that time was given to teaching the scriptures. It's not anymore in most churches. The majority of time is given to what? Music. Music. Weak music, theologically. I can't tell you how many times this goes into me. Uh, this happens to me. I go somewhere to speak, and uh, you know, I, I got slotted to do 45 minutes, but they don't have 45 minutes slotted. They got like 31 minutes. So recently I was speaking in a church and I had six verses to cover 
But they told me, you got to be done at a certain time. And I got to verse 4, and it was done. That was it. And so, I mean, I, I was a guest. I, I did what they asked because they had to turn over and had to change. But see, they'd had a whole bunch of music, a whole bunch, which they repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. Well, are you going to attempt it? Is that what you're going to try and do this morning? Because you've done it now 97 times. And you know what? That doesn't mean anything. I could sing of your love forever. Why don't you put some content into that song? What does that mean, you could sing a... You know what? I could, I, could, I could smoke a cigar forever. I could blow smoke rings forever. What does that crap mean? Now, if you want to talk about the love of God, why don't you go to Romans 5 and talk about the fact that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts? Talk about that. Put that in your song. See, I'm sounding like an old fogey. But see, our hymns... See, the thing about hymns is is content. Read those hymns. There's content about God and about his truth. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's just unbelievable. I can sing of your love. Now, if someone wants to raise their hands, I'm not mocking them. But what I'm mocking is this drug-induced worship that is full of vain repetition. And they sing it over and over and over again. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. And it's out of control. See? Why is there so much time given to music? And Well, we're going to worship. You know what worship? It's worship. And how can you worship if you don't know the truth about the one that you're supposed to worship? It's no different than a rock concert. Not in all cases. You guys understand that I'm on coding. (laughs) But you understand what I'm saying? So I wonder, hey, who's who's running this show here? How did you get this for 51 minutes of music and 31 minutes in the scriptures? What's happened to you guys? Well, we want to be seekers and sinners. Why would you want to do that? Why don't you just preach the truth that'll set people free? Now, you don't want to be a bunch of weirdos, and you don't want to be in 1955, but if we would just, and, and we, we don't want to, you know, be Amish people in our buggies and all that. I mean, we don't want to be, you guys, there's a modicum of truth to what they're saying, but we do not water down truth. We don't become like the world, and see, what's happened is the audience has become sovereign, We do whatever it takes to please the audience. The audience isn't sovereign. God is sovereign. In worship, he is the one that we acknowledge and focus on. You never should have said what you said. You sent me off, man. But I've been hacked off about this for quite a while. And everybody has different tastes in music, you know? Everybody does. And that's because we're different people. I I had a guy say to me this Sunday where I was speaking. I had a guy come up to me afterwards, and he was up. He said, I'm 70 years old, and I have a real hard time with what's going on here. I said, what's going on here? He said, I don't like the music. He said, you know, I grew up in a little country church. 
Okay, fine. You know what, pal? Those, those days are gone. I mean, so what do you want? Horse manure on your feet? Is that what you want? So he has this romantic ideal of how it used to be. And that's fine. That's good. But you know, hey, man, you're not going to find that in Dallas. You know, why don't you go milk the cows before you come to the service? See, that's, that's not even real. Now, if he's talking content, that's another issue. You, you guys get what I'm, I'm talking about the truth of God. We don't compromise the truth of God. We don't back off from the truth of God. Trying to get people there because we don't want to offend. Listen. What people are looking for is a strong, clear voice that will declare the word of God. People are dying for the truth. They're dying for it. Well, <clears throat> you know, Tommy Nelson did a series. I think my boy Josh has it. Years ago, Tommy, had, he's got a package of tapes. Series, he did a series of sermons called Venting My Spleen. <laughs> That's pretty good stuff. He just, went, he just went nuts for about four or five Sundays. And uh, it was good stuff. So I just did it here for a few minutes, and I, I sure feel better. <laughs> Let's see. Time is not relative. Time is fixed. So let's see what it says. Is it about, is it, what time is it? Because my battery's been, it's 10 after. See, mine says 5 to 8. See, it may be 10 after 8 to you, but it's 5 to 8 to me. I'll prove it to you. Because you see, time is relative. There is no truth. All right, now I was on page one, then I was on page true. It would make sense that I would then have a page three. And here it is. Let's break down scripture for a minute. And, and why would, say, so Farrar, why would you say that it's, it doesn't make sense to have 50 music of music and only 31 minute, minutes in the word? Well, the truth of the scriptures, there's a threefold um, character to the words of truth in the scriptures when you open your bible note this some of the words in your bible are law 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 involves commands prohibitions and sanctions so in the old testament people you know say what well, is all what about all that law stuff well some of it was civil law for israel back then that doesn't mean that's necessarily supposed to be for us because it was for Israel. Civil law and God had prohibitions because he wanted Israel to stay in existence. And if Israel became like the other nations, he would have to destroy them because of his justice and because of his holiness. But he couldn't do that because the Messiah who was going to save the world was going to come out of Israel. So he gave them very strict prohibitions. But you had civil law, you had ceremonial law. We don't sacrifice bulls and uh, sheep today because Christ was the fulfillment of that. Uh, you have moral law. You have the Ten Commandments law. That's, that, there's a morality in the Ten Commandments that we still have to have today. That's a moral, there, there are more principles there. But you can't post them. But we still have to have them because we'll, we spin into anarchy and chaos without them. You see. Um, 
it's pretty tough to have a culture that's going to work um, where lying is acceptable. It's pretty tough to have a culture where stealing is acceptable. You guys understand just the practicality. Some of our scripture is law. Second, some of our scripture would be testimony. It involves information given by God about himself and men and their respective acts and purposes and natures and prospects. Thirdly, some of the words within the scripture are promises. Promises which are favorable and unfavorable. If you read Deuteronomy 28, we went through the study of the kings. God said in Deuteronomy 28, if you bless me, if you, if you obey me, I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. If you disobey me, I will curse you, and the list of curses is three times longer than the promises of blessing. Some of those promises, God says, I will favor you. Some say, if you disobey me, I promise I will do this, and he kept his word. So some promises are favorable, some are unfavorable. Some are conditional promises, some are unconditional promises. But see, this book is truth. Some of you guys have Bibles, and the words of Christ are in red. Then every word in your Bible ought to be in red. Because this is the word of Christ. This is the testimony of Jesus. So what's the story on this word? We've got, uh, we've got commands. Let's talk about commands for a minute. Psalm 119.51. You guys still with me? See, I worry I lose you guys on Wednesday nights. Oh, I do worry about it. Because, because... I worry, but I don't lose you. So thank you. I, I appreciate that. Psalm 119.51 says God's commands are true. Psalm 119.51 says all thy commands, all thy commands are true. J.I. Packer says... Why are they so described? First, because they have stability and permanence as setting forth what God wants to see in human lives in every age. So why is our culture so against the Ten Commandments? And why is our culture in such disarray? And why is our culture in such chaos? Because the commandments which give permanence and stability are being attacked and are being rocked. These commands also tell us the unchanging truth about our own nature. See, it is our nature to lie. It is our nature to steal. It is our nature to murder. For this is part, Packer says, of the purpose of God's law. It gives us a working definition of true humanity. So this little, what, 12, 13-year-old girl that was murdered in Florida, you saw the video, the guy coming up and grabbing her arm, you saw that. And then you got this judge that had let that guy out because the guy had done it before, but this guy let him out. We'll see that judge uh, and liberals in general, because they're reprobates, do not believe what God says about the nature of men's hearts. And they are reprobates themselves. They don't believe what God says uh, so Norman Mailer runs around and he's, whenever there's a capital punishment, Norman Mailer's always there protesting against it. Well, Norman Mailer tried to kill his first wife. Did you know that? 
He, he took a knife to her, tried to kill her. He got off. Isn't that not amazing? Okay. That's why you got to read the Bible. You got to read your Bible just to keep saying. You got to read the Bible just to keep. See, the commandments give stability. The, the commandments give permanence. It shows us, Packer says, what man was made to be and teaches us how to be truly human and warns us, catch this, against moral self-destruction, which is what we're doing. So the commands are important, guys. Commands are incredibly important. Secondly, he talked about the promises of God. Let's talk about the promises for a minute. Hebrews 10.23 says, He is faithful that promised. If God makes a promise and God's nature, his essence is truth, then that promise will take place. That promise will happen because God cannot lie. There used to be a little hymn, a little chorus that we would sing. Maybe you remember this. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. I am trusting in his love divine. Every promise in the book is mine. You got to be careful with that because not every promise in the Bible is mine. Some promises were made to specific people. God made a promise to Abraham that he didn't make to me. God promised him the land, the seed, and the blessing. Now, because in the new covenant, we get grafted in to all that God has done. But there, were, there was a promise given to Abraham. I can't claim that promise. But other pro- see, some promises are conditional, and, some, and this is why you read the, your Bible in context. Some promises were to specific people at specific times. But there are other promises that are unconditional and promises that are for all believers. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise to you. That's a promise to me. There are times, like the guy in Psalm 77, he feels that God has forgotten him. God's abandoned him. No, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You may feel that way. You may not hear from me. You may not see movement from me, but I'm all around you. I'm with you. I've got my hand upon you. You just don't see it. You're not cognizant of it right now. But I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you where you are in that hard place. That's a promise of God you can live off of. Packer says this, a fixed, constant attention to the promises, <clears throat> excuse me, and a firm belief of them would prevent worry and anxiety about the concerns of this life. It would keep the mind quiet and composed in every change and support and keep our sinking spirits under the several troubles of life. See, I hear some of these worship guys, and what I need to do when I'm, when I'm worried and concerned is I just need to say, uh, I will sing of your love forever. I will sing of your love forever. Now, I'm being a little sarcastic here. But you know what? Uh, we got to do better than that in what we're teaching people. When I'm in trouble, I'm depressed, and I'm worried, I'm not going to sing of his love forever. I'm going to go to the promises of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell me to sing of his love forever. But what it tells me is I'll never leave you or forsake you. 
It tells me don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Your father knows that you need these things. He knows it. So, seek ye third, the kingdom of God. Seek ye first, the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and the vast majority of these things will be added unto you. All of these things. All of these things. Be anxious for nothing. Even that thing you're anxious about right now. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You got something in your life you don't know in the future. You don't know how it's going to work out? Tell him about it. Tell him about it. So I don't have a clue you're going to work this out. This is, you know what? It's getting close. I've been trying to be cool about this, but it's getting closer. When it was a year away, I, you know, I was okay, but now it's three weeks away. So, Lord, I, want you to, I just want you to know I'm getting a little closer here, and, and, and I got some worry and I got some anxiety. But you know what? I just want to give it up to you. You've told me you'll take care of me. You've told me you'll provide. You've told me you'll make a way where there is no way. And, and, Lord, I'm asking you to help me rest and go to sleep here. I just give you my anxiety. And you said you'll give me your peace. Now, I take you at your word. And then, I th Lord, I thank you you've got a solution that I can't see. I thank you, Lord. See, I've been thinking, Lord, about this for a year, but you've known about this for millions of years. And you've already got something in mind. And, you know, Lord, five years down the line, see, I'll look back on this, and there will be an amazing story, but I can't see that right now. But you've done that enough times in my past. <sighs> help me this time not to let that anxiety overwhelm me. Lord, would you help me to stand firm in this one? Don't let me cave. Help me to stand on your promises. Help me to stand on your word. Help me to sleep. Help me to rest. Help me to trust. You're living on truth. You're living on the truth of God. That's the only way to live, guys. See, it's a walk of faith, isn't it? Because God says, listen, I'll take care of you. I promise I will. And you're getting to crunch time. Well, that's either true or it isn't true. I'll tell you one of my greatest, one of my all-time favorite stories about the promises of God and about the truthfulness of God. I had, I had not planned on telling you this story. But in the 1940s, there was a, a, a couple that had gone to the mission field to a very remote tribe in Africa. And they were out in the bush. While they were there, um, the wife became pregnant, uh, delivered a child, and the child died because of a particular type of disease that was among the people they were ministering to. And 
it broke their hearts when they came back to the States on furlough. She consulted with some doctors. This, this child actually uh, had been close to a year by the time it died. When she consulted with the doctors, they said this can be handled through nutrition. And they told her, make sure that you take, because you'll probably be pregnant again, make sure that when you go back, you take ample supplies of uh, uh, oatmeal and, and, uh, and, and prunes. And so this woman did. Um, they were going to go back for three years. She assumed she would get pregnant and have a child. She prepared. She took the oatmeal and she took the prunes. Well, while they were there, um, she got pregnant. And um, on a particular day, um, some men came from about 60 miles away. There were a group of uh, uh, Belgians who were working on a mine. And one of the young men had been killed in an accident. And they came to the mission station to talk with her husband. Um, while they were talking with her husband about arrangements and funeral services and all that, another missionary wife came by to visit her and greet her with her six-month-old child, maybe nine-month-old child, and said, I'm very concerned about my baby because my baby is showing these signs, the exact signs that her child had died from. Um, she said, well, here's what your baby needs. She And, and gave her her supply of oatmeal and prunes. Uh, did it, it was a prunes? Yeah, this coating's affecting me, honestly. For this child, she'd given it away. Um, it was making a difference, but the lady came back. She gave her entire supply. Um, she was worried sick because she was pregnant. She's in the bush. She'd given it all away. And on the day those Belgian miners were there talking to her husband, for some reason she was fighting off depression because she said, Lord, I tried to prepare. I tried to be a good steward. I tried to do what the doctors told me to do, but this baby needed it, so I gave it. Um, oh, by the way, the mother of the child that she had given the oatmeal and prunes to uh, criticized her for not bringing more than she brought. And it kind of broke her spirit. Her husband's out there talking to these men. She's in the back room, weeping, fighting off depression. I know what's going to happen, Lord. I have this baby on the way, and I'm not going to be able to take care of my child. I'm going to lose another child. She hears the trucks drive off. The men are going back to the mine. She goes out to see her husband and to tell him what's on her heart and what, why she's been depressed the last few days. Um, but as she begins to tell him, they hear the trucks come back. Big, huge trucks these miners would use. And the man pulls back up, the form of the mine, rolls down his window, 
looks at the missionary with kind of a puzzled look on his face. He, he, he said, sir, excuse me, I, um, I was driving back. We appreciate your help and your counsel. But I was driving down the road here. I had to come back, and, and this is very strange, but, well, I'll just tell you. For some reason, every month, we get supplies from Belgium. And for some reason, every month, they send us a crate of oatmeal. And they send us a crate of prunes. And none of us eat it. Is there any way you might be interested in that? Now, is that not great? Is that not great? That woman's in that back room crying and weeping and asking God. She tried to do all that she could do. She had nothing left to hang on to except the promises of God. Let me tell you something. When you're in the bush in the Belgian Congo, there are no oatmeal. There is no oatmeal. There's no Quaker oats. And there are no prunes. Unless you know the God who keeps his promises. And who will ship it in from Belgium to get it to you. So the culture's going to hell, guys. The judicial system. No. We got a God who's true. That means I don't have to lie. That means I don't have to tell a guy something in a deal that's not true. Because, you see, I get a God that'll take care of me, and he'll come through in his promises, in his way, in his time. Have you seen him do that? Yeah. Well, then let's keep living it. So, Lord, we bow before you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word that is truth. We thank you that you are truth. We thank you for your commands, which give us permanence and stability. And if our nation won't adhere to those, we will in our church and in our family. And we will personally, as we live our lives and go about our business and interact with people. Lord, help us to keep our feet from under us when these uh, riptides come, when these huge waves come. Uh, we at times are tempted to walk away from truth. But remind us that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. You're looking for those who love truth and will proclaim truth and adhere to the truth, and you bless those individuals. We have all fallen short. We have all tainted the truth, and we have told half-truths, and we confess that to you and acknowledge that we've done it this week. Give us a great love for truth. Thank you that you have never lied to us and that you never will. Thank you you've never made a promise that you have broken. We can live off what you have said. We pray for our nation that it will return to your truth. We pay, pray for pastors that you would give them, that you would rekindle a love for you and a love for their word that they used to love and that they've departed from. Thank you, Lord, for this church and many others in this area that proclaim the truth of your word without apology. And usually when a church proclaims the truth of the word of God, it grows. 
not because of some slick technique or because of some seminar, but because your word does not return void. We can sleep tonight because you're a true God. We can wake up in the morning with whatever we are facing, knowing that your mercies are new every morning because your word tells us that, and it's true. So we look forward to the next 24 hours and what you might have in store for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.